The Boston Marathon is one of the most prestigious sporting events in the world, if not in history. Runners from all over the world must qualify to run this race that winds its way through the Newton Hills in Massachusetts. For the elite runners, they have a chance to make their mark in Boston Marathon history, and there is one woman who selects those athletes. I'll talk with her about the selection process, what her job entails, and how the runners are an important part of the legacy in Boston and throughout the world. Next on Sports in the Making. Thank you very much for listening to Sports in the Making, where we find out about people who work in the sports and broadcasting industry, find out what they do, and how sports comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona, and this is episode 15. Since 2013, I've had the privilege of being a part of the Boston Marathon coverage on Universal Sports Network and NBC Sports, working on this incredible gathering of the world's best runners. It is a triumph of spirit and an amazing display of camaraderie that can rarely be matched in the sports world. Unfortunately, the race is postponed like most other sports until later this year, if all gets back to normal. In 2013, I directed this event as well as acted as coordinating producer, and I even used my camera experience to record supporting elements for our coverage, and I was able to see many facets of what goes into making it happen. I've experienced the emotional side of the race, and I've come to appreciate how much fun it is. My guest on this episode is Mary-Kate Shea, Senior Director of Sports Marketing and Sponsorship for John Hancock, and she is one of the key people involved in making the race competitive each year by researching and selecting each elite runner that participates to make sure that the Boston Marathon is the best it can be. She's been an integral part of what the marathon has become over the past few years, and it's obvious how much the marathon lives in her. In this episode, we'll talk about how she became involved with the world's most prestigious marathon, how she connects with the elite runners, and how she participates in every 26.2 miles of it. This is my conversation with Mary-Kate Shea, and we recorded this conversation in early 2020, prior to the postponement of the 124th Boston Marathon, which is rescheduled for September 14th, 2020. Thank you for being with me, Mary-Kate. Thank you for inviting me. So you work on one of the most prestigious events in sports. What is it you do in your role with John Hancock, and how does that relate to the Boston Marathon? Sure. So my primary role is to recruit the international elite field for the Boston Marathon. And it's unique in the sports industry because John Hancock is is essentially the only sponsor that brings in athletes for a major marathon. So it could be described as, say, a sponsor of the Patriots um, setting their starting lineup for the Super Bowl. It's um, a very nice niche to have. And when our sponsorship began in 1986, the person at the time, David D'Alessandro, felt that part of the sponsorship should be uh, assembling this world-class field to ensure the race was fully supported and that it would be a major sporting event. How did you get to John Hancock and how did that relationship develop with the Boston Athletic Association? So it's interesting that I work for John Hancock, which is a financial services company that works with insurance and all sorts of products that help people uh, live healthier lives. But how that translates with the marathon is that we're more partners than sponsors with the Boston Marathon, just because Mm. we're going into our 35th year now. And it really does take a partnership. So even though we're the principal sponsorship, this is Boston after all, and um, we hold sports pretty sacred here. So it isn't the John Hancock Boston Marathon. We're not the title sponsor. We don't want to be the title sponsor. We want to be true to the heritage that is Boston. You know, Fenway is Fenway. The Boston Garden is the Boston Garden. Don't tell the sponsors, but um, (laughs) the marathon is the Boston Marathon. It's the race that belongs to the city and it belongs to everybody who runs it. And it's going into its 124th year. So we didn't want to didn't want to be bold in that fashion, but we do have the business align with that sponsorship in a number of unique ways. And uh, one of the ways is through the elite program. The elites not only run on Patriots Day, but they will um, partake in appearances around the country for different business units. They'll attend fun runs for important clients. So we've really turned a one-day event into an evergreen Um, system where we tap into this elite athlete team 
uh, throughout the year. And how did you get to work on this project for as a career? Sure. So I never thought I would be doing this, but 22 years later, here I am. I had run in college. I ran for Holy Cross. I was an 800 and pentathlon utility player, basically. But I ran four seasons of cross-country indoor track and spring track, and I loved the sport itself. And then I got married right out of college, and my husband went to West Point, and we went over to Germany to live there. And I got a few advanced degrees and started teaching college over there. And I always thought I'd be a college instructor or a teacher because my family has a long history of teaching. And then uh, life intervenes and we came back to Boston via Virginia, then Texas, then then back up here where I'm originally from. And I wanted something that was flexible. So I was writing, I was teaching night classes in Virginia and I was doing a lot of writing. I started my own consulting firm. And when I came back to Boston, I actually pitched a um, couple of running stories to the globe and I got to meet a woman by the name of Barbara Hebner there and we became friends. And then shortly after she told me about an opening at Hancock to research and write about elite athletes. And I thought this would be fantastic. So one of my closest friends and I both applied for the job. And um, when she found out there was no byline involved, it was just a lot of research that kind of opened the door for me. And I said, I don't care about bylines. I just want to be involved with this sport, something I've always been passionate about. I remember skipping out of seventh grade track and where I was from in Weymouth, Massachusetts and hopping on the red line, heading to the Boston Marathon every year and sitting on that corner of Com Ave and Boylston and just watching these phenomenal runners you know, go by. And even in college, we'd skip out on practice and take the bus down to the finish line area. And it was just such a huge event. And I just had so much admiration for these athletes that, of course, I wanted to be involved. And so when I went and they said, you can have the job, I said, I'll take the job. But um, there's two conditions. I get to run the marathon every year if I would like to. And on my own, I qualify and, and I register and I pay pay my own application fee mm. completely on my own. But that was one condition. And then flexibility, because by that time I had four young children and I really wanted to be involved, you know, in coaching soccer and, and um, just being involved in their life. So writing and research was very much um, amenable to being flexible. And then I um, quickly transitioned into helping the gentleman who recruited the field, Patrick Lynch. And he had done it from the very beginning. So he was a great mentor. And I learned a lot from him. And then he left in 2013. And then I just became full-time and started doing other sponsorship activations for the company. Now it's more than a full-time job, but I really enjoy it. And I'm really uh, fortunate to be able to do this. I've met amazing athletes along the way (laughs) and uh, really love the challenge. It's kind of like chess, you know, you're building a strategy every year. You're trying to bring back people who are seasoned and accomplished and know how to run a championship style race of point to point, no pacers, very challenging, hilly. You need strength and speed. And then to mix that in with a few debut people, And then also emerging elites, upcoming elites who are hungry and motivated. And I always love to have those matchups, you know, where this year, the first and second in Chicago was by one second and the winner happened to be our champion and he won Boston by two seconds over a former champion. So I love having those rivalries back in Boston, not only man versus man and woman versus woman, but Mm -hmm. also country versus country. There's a lot of pride in every country that comes to the Boston Marathon and We've had about 48 countries represented here in the elite field. So it's it's a wonderful mix of people. Well, it's definitely an awesome event. My first experience with it was in 2013. I was directing the broadcast for Universal Sports Network at the time. Mm. And that's actually when we first met during the press conference. Just afterwards, you would bring the elite athletes to get interviewed by us. Right. And then I actually got to see what you do on race day really early in the morning and just seeing how you relate to the athletes the day that they check in. It was really interesting (laughs) to see. Yeah, 2013 was actually my first year of putting the entire field together because um, Patrick Lynch had uh, retired uh, in 2012. So even though I had been heavily involved um, many years before, it was actually it was complete ownership. So there was, you know, nerves, nerves at the foremost. Um, and 
one of my jobs, as you know, just from talking with you and seeing you, um, because you guys were always in the room where the athletes check in. So they come in and they check in their uniforms. I make sure they have both of their shoes because we travel out to Hopkinton, which is a marathon away. Mm -hmm. So they have to have everything. And then, you know, this quiet energy in the room and this nerves and uh, excitement. And that's probably one of the most favorite times of the year for me after our president Marianne Harrison uh, speaks to the athletes. I just kind of tell all of them right before we get on the bus, I say, you know, Boston is unique. It's a race that anyone can win. All of you here sitting here, all 50 of you have the chance to win. You've prepared, you've trained, anything can happen in Boston. And if you look at our history, you <laughs> will note mm -hmm. that anything can happen in Boston. I think when Meb won, he was probably 18th on the list as far as personal best times. And he's shown, uh, shown that year. And that was one of my favorite memories in 2014. I recruited Meb to come back and race. And when he checked in with me that morning, on his bib, he had written the names of the four people who died in connection with the 2013 finish line bombing. And I just was so taken aback by that. And I thought it was, was such a wonderful honor and a tribute. And I said, man, this is absolutely amazing. And he said, well, I want to honor the victims when I run. And sure enough, he won the race. Yeah. And if you look closely at all those pictures, you'll see the victims' names on each of the corners of his bib. And that was just uh, an amazing experience for everybody and, and quite an honor. And that year, just running that year myself, I had never heard the, the crowds louder. When you went through framing him, it was just craziness. And by BC, mm -hmm. it was amazing. And Wellesley and all the eight cities and towns the city and the fans really came out to support all the runners from around the world. And there was just a special feeling that year that, okay, we've had our, we've had our grieving and now, you know, we're going to take back these streets and we're going to show how resilient and strong we are. Well, and I know you have a lot going on and, you know, just from my perspective, being near the television trucks by the finish line, the days prior, the energy was unlike the year before it, you know, the year before it was just another race. And then the next year I was expecting to go back to Boston after the bombings and feel this, you know, somewhat somber energy. And it was nothing like that at the finish line with the people and the fans coming to take pictures at the, at the finish line prior to the race. How was it from the Boston Athletic Association side and the John Hancock side? Well, I think, um, I think it was a relief in, in some ways to everybody um, because, you know, it was such an honor to be there and a privilege to be there. Mm -hmm. And our 2013 champion, Lilisa DeCisa, who now has won twice and he's the reigning world champion, shortly after the 2013 race, I connected with him and he decided to gift his medal back to the city of Boston in honor of the city and everyone who was impacted. There right. were like 230 people who were injured from that tragedy. So it was extensive. People lost limbs and, and eyesight and hearing, and it was very traumatic. And this gesture by an elite athlete was just absolutely stunning. So to have him back and people to know him by name and for Meb to win and it just to be a beautiful day. And, um, you know, some of the victims to be there and to be honored before and after the race. I think it was a moment of healing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the BAA as the, the Boston Athletic Association, as the race organizers were in it, you know, throughout and, and still feeling the after effects of, of this tragedy. And it's just an amazing partner to work with. Everyone at the BAA is just wonderful they just really know their stuff and they put on a world-class event. So we're, we're lucky as a sponsor to work with them. Yeah. And, you know, most of my career has been spent in, you know, stick and ball sports. And so when I got to Boston, I guess I didn't know what to expect. I'm not really a runner, but it, it is by far one of my favorite events. And I worked it seven years and there's just something different about that event. So how would you describe the Boston Marathon 
from someone who's on the inside working with it? And then how does, how do you see the perception around the world? You know, anytime you can work on a sporting event, I think it's amazing, but beyond baseball and basketball, football, soccer, hockey, this is something where you get to run the same race course as the best athletes in the world. You're covering the same course on the same day with the most amazing runners, you know, you'll ever meet. Mm -hmm. And just to be able to share that experience. And I think elite runners are so humble and dedicated and hardworking, but most importantly, so approachable. They know that even if you're running a six hour marathon, you are still putting in the time and the dedication and have to have the courage and perseverance to continue on. So I think that, um, that knowledge really brings people together. So when you're organizing event, an event like that, that is kind of the foundation. You know that it's not just going to be about an elite athlete group. It's going to be about 30,000 people. And the Boston Marathon is, for many people, their Olympics or their Holy Grail. A lot of people work their entire life to try to get that Boston qualifier, mm-hmm. to be there on the starting line. So it is really a race that is set apart from other major races. And just to know that people have to work so hard gives everybody on the organizing committee a lot of motivation to really put on a world-class event. And then the couple of thousands of people who raise money for an entry, they've raised, last year they raised $36 million. That's 2,000 runners. The average raise per charity runner was northwards of $11,000. So per person, that's a tremendous amount of money. And it benefits Mm -hmm. about 150 nonprofits, well, about 200 combined in Boston. And the total raise so far has been well over 300 million during during our sponsorship and the BAA's nonprofit program and John Hancock's nonprofit program. So whether you're a qualifier or whether you're uh, running for a nonprofit, everybody in the organizing committee wants you to have the best race possible. Mm-hmm. And we also want this to be a world-class sporting event. So people around the world will either connect with the fact that it's really hard to get to the start in Hopkinton, whether you're a Boston qualifier, a charity runner, or an elite athlete. And uh, that helps us with the months of work we do. All right. So back to your job responsibilities. When, let's say after last year's Boston event, Mm -hmm. what is your process leading up to this year's Boston event? So when I'm out in Hopkinton, so I I go out and I um, help with the, um, I get the elites out to the starting line. So actually physically walk them out from there. Um, We house them at a um, church right near the starting line and bring them out to the start. And this year the women will start after them. I mean, the men start and then the women start. So they're well underway. Mm -hmm. I'll jump in. And usually along the way, I'll say, who's winning the race? And somebody on the sideline will say something like, the Red Sox are up by two. And I'm like, no, who's winning <laughs> this race here? They All they hear is who's winning, and they assume it's the Red Sox. Anyway, um, when I get to the finish line, I just immediately go to somebody in the media and ask them for a quick take on the race. And then I'll usually jump over a barricade I always forget to get my medal for some reason, and then I'll, I'll head into the press room and then get all the updates there, and then I'll go to Elite Recovery and up to our hospitality suite and check in on the elites, see who, if anybody is in the hospital, and uh, just do a check and then take the athletes down to the ballroom where we have an award ceremony. By then, most of the media has been done, fulfill any of the media, then we head over to Fenway and all the participants get to meet the elites. And then in that brief three hours, I may have already signed the champions for next year's race. So Mm. it begins as soon as this year's race ends, I begin recruiting for the next year's race. And then uh, things will pick up in May and then through the summer, depending on if it's an Olympic year or World Championships year. I'll take a look at those races, but pretty much uh, two days after Boston, I'll head on a plane over to London 
where I'll recap with a bunch of the agents and I'll see a whole group of new athletes and some seasoned athletes and uh, a lot of chatting happens and then it just continues. I'll travel to all the majors and meet with agents at those races, Tokyo, Berlin, Chicago, New York, London, and just get the field together. I have a budget I have to work with and I try to get the most value for that budget. So it's really a lot of maneuvering. I have to do a tremendous amount of research, historical context, see what their progression was, be alert for any leaps in uh, results, protect the reputational risk of John Hancock mm. for any doping. So a tremendous amount of research, but it's something that sticks in my brain. I know a lot of stats about a lot of runners. I remember a lot of names and it seems like a natural passion for me to be able to craft how this is going to work out. And then at John Hancock, we have a great team that helps with, you know, putting on an Olympic style village with logistics and getting people here, the flights and the lodging. We have communal meals uh, where everybody eats together in a dining room and gets to know each other. So everyone in the field will get to know and create new friendships with people from around the world. Oh, that's good. So there's a, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, teamwork involved and then marketing and we have to send out the press news and, and just craft the stories about all of these amazing people. They really do have amazing stories. I mean, some of the athletes have gone back and built hospitals and schools in their villages. One athlete um, brought running water to his village for the first time ever with mm -hmm. his prize money. It really <clears throat> does have a wonderful ripple effect, what we're trying to do. And how well do you get to know these elite athletes? Because you're pulled in a lot of different directions, number one, with your responsibilities, but you also have to be able to get to know your athletes. Right. So, and that's really important. And, you know, I, I'd like to engage them in conversation. I like to look them in the eye. I like to ask a lot of difficult questions. And um, I think it's really important to know who you're putting in the field, who you're bringing. There has to be some element of trust. And um, I did go to Kenya a few years back and that was just an amazing uh, trip and I got to see firsthand how hard people work to be a runner they run in the morning they run in the evening they're at altitude they do track work on a dirt track every Tuesday they do fartlek which is intervals through the hills every Thursday there's big training groups there's small training groups everybody is really working hard and when they're not working you know, I had stayed at uh, 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 an amazing athlete, Lorna Kiplagat. She has a high altitude training camp there and a school for girls. And I stayed at her place. And uh, I remember someone found out that that I was in Kenya and um, said, Mary Kate, can I come in and sit with you and have some chai? And I said, sure. And they said, OK, we'll be there at 10. In Kenyan time, 10, 10, 10 a.m. really means maybe 11, 15. <laughs> but once <laughs> once the word got out, every hour on the hour or, or every 20 minutes, there'd be another athlete who I had worked with, and they would be coming from all over. And then the ones who did not know I was there, you know, when I left, were like, why didn't you tell me you were there? So very friendly, and um, you do get to know people. And then a lot of the Americans I know quite well, and the Canadians. Um, but the East Africans are amazing human beings, you know, Wesley career mm -hmm. built a hospital, um, paid for ambulances in this village, became a member of parliament. They're just, um, the athletes really are amazing people on the roads and off the roads. Well, and you do see a certain amount of humbleness when they're at the press conference and the interviews that we've done with NBC and also just walking around the hotel, and I know some of that might be a language barrier, but it, you still feel like there's gratitude that they're there and there's a special significance, and there could be some very positive implications if they win. Oh, absolutely. It's, it can be, it is life-changing. I mean, you should, you should have a chat with Des Linden. It, it's a life-changing experience to win the Boston Marathon, and uh and even if you don't finish podium, you know, to make the podium at Boston sets you up to achieve mm -hmm. further down the road. And uh, it I can't even imagine what it what it means to somebody to win that it's really at the pinnacle of the sport. So it's really cool. But one of the coolest 
things that ever happened to me. Wilson Tibet, amazing athlete, came in second here in Boston. And after the race, I think it was 2016, 2015, 2016, he gifted me an orphaned elephant. <laughs> oh, wow. As a, as a thank you. So I, I took a picture of the elephant. Her name's Malima. Uh, to the floor, and it became our floor mascot, and everybody got to share in Malina's uh, success in surviving the wilds of Africa. So that was <laughs> that was an interesting experience. Now, well, I'm going to ask yeah. you about more special or you know, special moments or memorable moments in, in just a bit. But when you are preparing those those 48 hours before the event, mm-hmm. most I think that's when most of the energy is happening, and the you know the media comes in. And what are those? 72, 48 hours before the uh, race. What are that? What is that like? Sure. Um, I wish um, GPS watches were never invented because I think it was last year. I just took a look at my watch and how far I'd walked the day before. And it was 10 miles. <laughs> and now that, that, that was just walking. So walking, you know, Friday is the big press conference. So we bring in all of the open elite athlete team, as well as the defending champions, the wheelchair champions, and um, the open champions. We have a cadre of ambassadors, which include Bill Rogers, Shalane Flanagan, Joni Benoit, Greg Meyer, Tatiana McFadden, um, uh, just great people who represent the sport well, Uda Pipic, and to bring them all together. So that really is the kickoff. And throughout that day, all the athletes will have media obligations, They'll have expo obligations, other sponsor obligations, and we just try to make sure that they're resting when they can rest and not getting too busy. We'll take groups out to the finish line for surprise meet and greets Mm. with anyone who just happens to be passing, and that's really popular. Uh, Sometimes we'll do news panels. New York Times had a nice panel, and then um, over at the expo, they have some nice runner panels. So Friday and Saturday are pretty busy, and then Sunday... I pretty much tell everybody they just need to eat and sleep and rest and chat. And uh, just, you know, that's when the laser focus comes in and you'll see, you'll see the demeanors completely change and people are really in tune with uh, what task lies ahead of them and what they have to do on Monday Patriots day. Yeah. So it's, it is a whirlwind, you know, on Thursday we have a tradition that's now I think three decades old, uh, where the Kenyan athletes, so usually about 10 to 15, go out to Hopkinton to the right. elementary school and meet with the third graders. We'll do different things in the city at the Reggie Lewis. So we do keep them busy, uh, but not too busy because they are here to race and they need to rest. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, Marathon Monday is one of your favorites. I've been there. I've seen the behind the scenes. I've seen how you interact with these athletes that are checking in. And what surprised me, and I kind of chuckled the first couple of times, you make sure they have their bibs, but you ask if they have both shoes. Is there something yes. that has happened in the past that that has gone awry? No, no one has ever okay, forgotten good. their shoes. And that's the reason I ask. And I actually look at the shoes. <laughs> yeah. You need your shoes. I know they're dressed when they come down there. So even if they don't have, you know, the, the their favorite set of shorts, I know they'll, they'll have clothing. But um, a few of the agents go out too and they, they always carry a bag of gear and everybody shares whatever they have when you get out there, especially if the weather changes dramatically. So yeah, you, you, you get them on the bus, you take them out mm-hmm. to Hopkinton. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's the state troopers close down the Mass Pike. So mm-hmm. it's just, we have three buses in case one or two bus buses break down, the whole group can fit on one bus. So it's very well orchestrated. And then we get out in Hopkinton and um, usher them into a Korean church, uh, which they've been housed at for probably 30 years, which is wonderful. It's right next to the starting line. And they'll kind of zone out. They cover themselves with a few blankets or towels. They're sitting on yoga mats. They're doing light stretching. And then about 20 minutes before their race start time, they'll go out and do some running uh, in the back of the church. And then I'll have a roll call, which is very stressful for me because I don't want to forget anybody mm-hmm. and um, I'll line them up. And then we walk out the chute, the national anthem, the flyover and get everybody on the start. We'll do a call out for media of about four to five of the 
top athletes, they'll give a wave to the camera. And then I back away, get back to the church for the next group, and the elites are off. So, yeah, yeah. it's pretty uh, pretty methodical at this point, but still a little nerve-wracking because, you know, I've had elites throw watches at me that they now don't want to wear, or uh, one <laughs> one Ethiopian athlete um, thought the the donation bags along the side of the course were elite bags, and she threw her warm-up in there with her passport in it. So, so that was a little traumatic <laughs> trying to get her out of the country afterwards, but we did. Yeah. We got her, her passport back. All right. I'm talking with Mary Kate Shea, Senior Director of Sports Marketing and Sponsorship with John Hancock. All right, Mary Kate, the guns go off, mm-hmm. the runners are on the course. What wave do you run in and how long does it take you? So after I get everybody off, I uh, jump back into the church and just get my bib on and I will go in wave two. Then last year, I it was a 344 for me, and um, I'm an old person, so I took that and celebrated heartily uh, that evening because uh, that was a good run for me. And I got to run 10 miles of it with my youngest daughter, who's 25, and uh, that was just special. All four of my children have run yeah. uh, Boston, so that was great. And as we talked before the podcast started, this is going to be your 24th. This one coming up will be my 24th consecutive, and I've managed to qualify for all of them except for one where I was injured and I missed by five minutes. But I belong to a great running uh, club here, and uh, we do a lot of volunteering, so I was able to secure a invitational bib that way and uh, kept my streak going. So, so even so though you work good. with the Boston Athletic Association and John Hancock, you still have to qualify. Um, I think it's a point of honor for me, yeah, to, you know, be authentic. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I I definitely appreciate that because I'm not a runner. I, I mean, the longest I've run is 10K, and uh, I want to get past that eventually, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> well, I, I, I will tell you this, though. It does give me inspiration to, to attempt every time I finish work in the Boston Marathon. So there is that. Yeah, you can definitely. We have, um, John Hancock has an employee training program. So every year there's a big lottery and about four to 500 people um, put their names in the lottery to get a slot. And 150 um, John Hancock employees run for charity. And uh, Greg Meyer is the coach. So talk about having one of the greatest coaches there is. And some of the folks have never run at all. So we start them basically from being a non-runner and our percentage of finish rate is really high. It's, it's about 90%. So, uh, you can do it. I know you can. (laughs) I will, I will strongly consider that. How's that? You should, you should, everybody should do it once. All right. So we mentioned some, uh, a memorable event that you've had at the Boston marathon. What are your top five in the, in the history of the Boston marathon that you've experienced? Well, um, Meb with his bib, that would be that would be up there. Another one was 2018. I uh, had never experienced any type of weather like that. It was freezing, driving rain, and the wind was just traumatizing, and it was just utterly miserable. But while I was running, as I said earlier, I've never on the course, never heard who was winning, who was leading. Nobody would give me any help um, shouting out to me what's going on in the race until I get down on Boylston Street. Before you go there, and, who, who was in the field? And you're oh, talking well, women here, I assume. Some of my favorites. There was uh, Shalane and there was Des and Jordan and there was, uh, uh, oh, all sorts of great Americans. It was a stacked American field. And, uh, you know, but there were also amazing international uh, athletes. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I got to the base of Heartbreak Hill. And what was interesting to me is anytime the rain started uh, driving down harder, the people around me who were running started cheering. And I said, these people are crazy. <laughs> but there was one guy under one tent and he had a bullhorn at the bottom of Heartbreak. And he goes, you guys look fantastic. You're doing amazing. Des London just won the Boston Marathon. Keep going, everybody. You can do this. You can do this. And I, all I thought was, did he just 
did he say that? Did he say that? And I just, that, that thought and that image of Des finally winning the Boston Marathon kept me going, kept me going those last six miles. I crossed the finish line. I ran into the hotel. First, I saw Yuki, who's just an amazing athlete. And I'll tell you a story about him later. But I uh, saw Yuki, gave him a big hug. And then I found Des and I looked at her. And the first thing I could say was, it's about time you won this race. <laughs> and she just started laughing. But that was just a great memory. And uh, we have a lot of laughs about that. And, and we had a few drinks after that, too. So well-deserved there. Yeah. You mentioned Yuki. Uh, that would be Yuki Kawuchi, the winner of the 2018 Boston Marathon. Yeah, Yuki, that's another great story. Uh, his agent, Brett Lahner, is just a wonderful person, originally from Canada, but has lived in Japan for years and kind of helped guide Yuki along the way when he was uh, working uh, full time and running recreationally, you know, up to, I don't know how many, 20 marathons a year. And I had seen Yuki over in Berlin and I really, he was such a crowd favorite and, and the guy's just an amazing runner. I mean, mm -hmm. he's run about 80 marathons under 220, uh, has a world record there and his PB is like 208. He's been on four world championship teams in outright. He is an amazing athlete. And I said, we have to have him over in Boston. And we have a great tradition with the Japanese athletes of Boston anyway, with uh, the BAA being uh, sister city to Ome 30K. And so I said to his agent, what is it going to take? And um, we got Bill Rogers involved and I sent the agent to the Red Sox game and they messaged Yuki and one thing led to the other. And I got a call finally from the agent um, in 2017 and said, Mary Kate, uh, there's a new, there's a New Year's Day marathon that Yuki would like to come out for a training. I offered him a training um, trip to Boston in advance of the marathon as part of his um, deal. And they said, uh, there's a marathon out there where you live over in, over in Marshfield. And I said, yeah, because I, I belong to the Marshfield Roadrunners. And uh, he said, is it certified? Is it sanctioned? He'd like to break the world record there. And I said, it isn't, but it will be. And yes, we will. We will gladly invite <laughs> Yuki. So um, I got the course certified and sanctioned by USATF. And then um, first, uh, when Yuki arrived, they stayed out at the Lower Newton Falls. I think in two days, he covered probably 40 or 50 miles of the course. We went to dinner with Bill Rogers and Jack Fultz and, and a few other folks. And then the next day, he came down to Marshfield. It was well below zero, um, freezing wind. And he ran the race, broke the world record, ran like a 218. And uh, then, you know, stayed at my house, showered. I've never seen someone eat so much, made him <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs, took him to a little um, party. And um, then a couple months later, he wins the Boston Marathon in wow. traumatic weather conditions. So I guess the uh, Marshall uh, Road Race set him up well. So you were responsible for his victory. No, he was responsible <laughs> for his victory, but go with me here. <laughs> <laughs> I will say there was one point uh, late in the night. Uh, his agent was walk watching the Aikadens, uh, which are very popular over in Japan. And we thought we lost uh, Yuki because he stayed in the bathtub for about, I don't know, an hour or so. Uh, but he was fine. He was just recovering. And he actually woke up the next morning and went running. Um, so just a phenomenal phenomenal athlete and this year he'll come back and uh with his new wife and his mom and his mom and his wife are both running as well okay we talked earlier as well about what the boston marathon can do for somebody who wins what is it like in your eyes for meb and for des the two americans who ended the drought for american wins in the boston marathon well i just think it's phenomenal i mean meb is the most highly decorated u.s marathoner in history with his um, <clears throat> Olympic medal and his win in New York and his win in Boston. I don't think any other man has done that. So that's, you know, a feather in his cap. He is an amazing speaker. He's an amazing person. And uh, even if he had not won Boston, he would still be a world-class person mm -hmm. anyway. But I think he values it, especially coming in 2014. And he had to miss 2013. And I actually, uh, on 2013, I had finished the race and came back over to the finish line and um, actually met Meb 
at the finish line. And I have a picture of him with my extended family right before the bombing. And it was just, a, you know, afterwards we messaged each other and just said, you know, family is everything. And, mm-hmm. and this race means the world to us. So Meb is just an extraordinary ambassador for the sport. And uh, we're lucky that he we have him here. And he's a great ambassador for us. He continues to give keynote speeches for us, for our company, for John Hancock. And uh, I can't say, I can't speak more highly of him. And then Des, I mean, I think, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, she had never won a marathon before Boston. She had come in second at the trials. She had come in second at the trials. She had come in, you know, top 10 and I don't know how many majors, a lot of majors. And uh, so this really, I think, was a highlight for her because she has invested so much time and effort. She named her dog Boston. You know, she uh, always out here training on the course every year. She has a wonderful personality. She's smart. She's witty. Um, She's, you know, has a lot of people think uh, of her as someone who is approachable, who can be her friend. She is right there with you. She's not uh, too good for anything. She just loves. She is too good for anything. She's too good for everything. But she um, doesn't have any pretense. She's very authentic. And we can't obviously forget about the uh, push rim athletes. Tatiana McFadden. Tatiana McFadden is amazing. Yeah. yeah. She is. She is. Her shoulders and her biceps. I, I don't even. I can't even tell you how strong she is. She is just amazing. And what a wonderful story she has. And she is so relatable to to everybody. Um, she has also spoken on behalf of John Hancock at, at key business unit events and talk about accomplishments. I don't even know how many to- right. how many Paralympic medals she has, and she's won every major several times over. And you know she she's proudly worn the MR8 Martin Richard vest uh, at Boston. Tatiana is just an amazing person. Well, she's got a pretty big rivalry now with Manuela Schar from Switzerland. She does. So Manuela won um, last year, 2019, and Tatiana won in 2018. Tatiana's won, I think, five times in Boston. She loves Boston. She loves the downhills. She loves the uphills. And uh, it it evens out the playing field a little bit because Manuela has the the world record and is extremely fast. Uh, So, yeah, I think Tatiana still has a few wins left in her. Definitely. Yeah. And then on the men's side too, uh, Marcel Hoog and Daniel Romanchuk. Romanchuk from, yeah, from the U.S. Yeah. So this, this year's uh, wheelchair field is phenomenal. Marla Runyon over at the Boston Athletic Association, who herself was an Olympian and was a top finisher here in Boston. She recruits the field for the wheelchair group and uh, she's done an amazing job. And just uh, Danielle, yeah, the youngest uh, American to ever win Boston. I think his his wingspan, so to speak, is uh, taller than most people. Wow. I mean, longer than most people. And they all are out of the University of Illinois out there with their program, doing an amazing job for the Americans. From my perspective, having covered it, it's it's a very well thought out race, not just from the athletes that are brought on, but, you know, the, the start. It's a championship course. You know, for anybody who's participating in it, it's a special event. And anybody who's on the course, it, to me, it seems like a special event as well. It def- definitely is, yeah. I don't know if there's any comparison with other marathons out there. Well, the the comparison that we can make is that, you know, up until a few Olympics ago, uh, it, it was always a point-to-point uh, course. Mm-hmm championship style racing and same with the world athletics uh now with security and um everything that everyone has to be cognizant of the olympic and world athletics races have become a a bit more circular but there's still no pacing at boston it is point to point you're battling the the weather good bad or ugly and uh you really have to be yeah the hills and Boston can be an extremely fast course, but it can be an extremely slow course. It depends on the tactics and the strategy, and uh, that's why anybody can win at Boston. Yeah. You can't take any anything for granted. You need to you need to know when people are making moves, and you need to move with them, and you need to have confidence. All right, from a runner's perspective, we're going to do a little bit of a word or a phrase play. Sure. As brief of an answer as you can, describe what each of these words or phrases means to you. Hopkinton, the start of the race. 
Excitement. The Scream Tunnel, the halfway point at Wellesley College. Insane. What makes it insane? Uh, because you will never hear those that, that much screaming anywhere, anytime. You just can't. It, it's indescribable. You, you can hear it a half mile before and a half mile after. The first year I ran Boston, I had to go to the other side of the street. It's just absolutely crazy. The Newton Fire Station. Camaraderie. Why do you say camaraderie there? Because on every training run, the firefighters in the house are out there offering uh, sports drinks and water to everybody training. And every weekend, there are so many people training on the course. It's like a, it's like a parade. So when I pass that, I'm not really thinking about the hills yet, even though I am thinking about the hills. I'm thinking about, um, you know, just the, just the kindness of that firehouse. All right. Yeah. Heartbreak Hill. Made famous by a Boston Globe reporter, Jerry Nason, in 1936, when defending champion John Kelly passed another competitor, Ellison Brown, and tapped him on the shoulder on the way up the hill, and Brown eventually regained the lead to win the race. Kelly was left heartbroken. What is Heartbreak Hill to you? Uh, as an elite coordinator, it's where the racing really begins. And as a participant, it's six miles to go. Once you get to the top of that hill, uh, it's pretty much 10K to go. I also say a few prayers on that hill, too. <laughs> and you do, you do pass um, Boston College, so I guess it's apropos. Well, for somebody who'd never experienced the Boston Marathon before, I did actually walk the course. We shot some video of Heartbreak Hill. It's a very deceiving hill. It's not like climbing a mountain, but it's. would you describe it as being a little bit deceiving? It's, it's where it falls in the course. So what I do, I offer um, some of the elites training trips to Boston. And the first thing I do is I put them in the car and I drive the course backwards. Because when you drive the course backwards, you can see just how much mm. you're going uphill. And um, just to have that in your brain. The other great thing is we do, I do take them to the hills and, and um, Ryan Hall gave the best bit of advice, you know, we all count it as four hills, not three, because everybody counts the, the hill up over Route 128, that first hill out of Lower Newton Falls, as the first hill. And then we've got the three Newton Hills. And he said that the way it's laid out, yes, it's challenging and it's tough, but between all of the hills, you do get a nice stretch where you can regroup, refocus, catch mm -hmm. your breath, and then and then move on. But yes, the hills can be deceiving, but it's just because they're coming so late in the race. Right. It really knocks the socks off of you. Turning onto Boylston Street. Oh. <laughs> Someone once said, it's Christmas and Easter. And <laughs> if every <laughs> holiday, every holiday rolled into one, it's like this is where you say, I have made it, but you also say, I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> It's it's uh, a little bit of relief and uh, just happiness. Crossing the finish line. History. No matter if you're an elite or just a, a, a person who's qualified. Yeah, you become part of the Boston family. You become part of the Boston Marathon family, part of that legacy. You've done it, and it's been being done for 124 years, that's really, really special. The celebration afterwards. <laughs> we don't sleep. We just stay up all night. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's a lot of celebrating. Okay, so one final question. What would mm -hmm. you like people to know about the Boston Marathon that they might not otherwise know? I want them to know that the eight cities and towns along the course, everyone who lives there, there's been generation upon generation upon generation of families that have come out every Patriot's Day to support runners. If it's an extremely hot day, they'll have ice, they'll have popsicles. If it's extremely cold day, they'll be there to cheer you on. It's just, I think the support, you know, this, what, 10,000 volunteers along the, the route, but the support of the communities is something that is unexpected.
the volunteers out there, there's like 10,000, but then just the fans that come out to support it are just amazing. And I've only asked one person for a beer along the route on one year, which was extremely hot, and they kind of offered it to me. <laughs> so I had to stop and drink the beer and then start again. <laughs> so they'll even give you beer if you need it. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. And um, thank you so much for your time and explaining what you do and how it all comes together. Thank you for all you do for the sport. And again, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because it's so interesting to see the behind the scenes of, of how things come together. And, and the reason for this podcast is just to let sports fans know that it's not just a magical event that appears out of nowhere. There's a lot of work and love and, and energy that goes into it. So thank you very much for, for your time. Thank you and good luck. All right. That was my conversation with Mary-Kate Shea, Senior Director of Sports Marketing and Sponsorship for John Hancock. It is unfortunate that this year's Boston Marathon and really all sports have been canceled. I'm releasing this episode one week from the original date of the Boston Marathon, and obviously things have drastically changed, but I felt it was still important to give you this interview while there are no sports happening. For Mary-Kate, there's no doubt that her responsibilities will drastically change for this event this fall, but I hope this episode gave you an idea of what she does. There are many interesting careers that one can have in the sports industry, and I have to say that her job is a runner's dream. To not only select the world's best runners for the Boston Marathon, build personal relationships with those athletes who go on to become sports legends, and to run the course is unlike any other sport out there. I've seen Mary-Kate work up close over the last seven years, and it's something very special to me and something that I truly appreciate in what she does and all the time that she spends with it. So the next time you watch the Boston Marathon, you should have a better idea on how those athletes were chosen. Again, the 124th edition is postponed until September 14th, 2020, still on a Monday, so be sure to watch it on NBC Sports Network. On the next Sports in the Making podcast, I'll talk with four-time Olympic medalist and NBC track and field analyst Otto Bolden. We'll talk about the postponement of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, what goes into training to be an Olympic athlete, and his philosophy on coaching the next generation of Olympic hopefuls. If you like this episode, be sure to like it and share it on your social media channels, and positive reviews are always appreciated. Also, be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on more episodes. If there is something that you would like to know more of in sports, drop me a line on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You can also visit sportsinthemaking.com to catch up on previous episodes and for some additional content. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making.